Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. Today, photographer Ida Mouliné on art, nationhood, and faith. My ultimate focus from the beginning and why I decided to study cinema, why I decided to study communication, has always been growing up in Canada and always hearing sort of one-sided stories when it came to Ethiopia. And this is when I realized that the power of media and communication is so strong that we need to engage in it in order to sort of change that narrative. Once you've seen Ida Mouliné's photography, her style becomes instantly recognizable. She creates majestic portraits of Ethiopian women using vivid colors against clean, stylized backdrops. In one, there's a face painted white, eyes closed with a red hand held against his cheek. In another, a woman stands in the cloud, stepping off one red ladder towards another, frozen in the space between. It all looks familiar, but not quite of this world. You can feel the future and the past, the real and the imagined, what is and what could be. Her work has won awards and been featured in major museums as well as newspapers like the Washington Post. Ida was born in Ethiopia, but left at an early age, only to return as an adult. She has since set up a company to support local artists and started the Addis Photo Fest, the first international photography festival in East Africa. She joined me from her home in Addis Ababa. When I started uh, photography in high school in Calgary, I had this sort of interest in art and painting. But when I discovered the dark room and my first print, I was like, who needs to spend all this time drawing things when you can actually replicate it within an image? I believe every photographer remembers, you know, every photo that they have ever taken. I think it's, it's quite impossible not to remember. My first photo was a blossoming flower, a white flower. That was our first assignment. So I went into what I remember was the Botanical Gardens in Calgary. And that was also my first print. You know, you, you started freelancing as a photojournalist for the Washington Post after college. What did that feel like coming out of college and, and working for the Washington Post? What was driving you to become a photojournalist at that particular moment in the development of your career? I mean, I, I entered uh, Washington Post because of a photographer named Dudley Brooks, who was a staff photographer there. Um, and I think for me, like Washington Post was my boot camp because it was a very difficult and intense system because it's highly competitive. It's not like we were getting the most romantic assignments either, you know, uh, since we were the younger photographers that were there. 
But I remember one of the, the chief editors used to say, you know, you have to make a decision. He used to say, like, are you an artist or are you a photojournalist? Because over time, my work started shifting into something else. And my argument was like, why can't I do both? Because I, I felt passionate about both. And even when I teach, you know, I do believe that the foundation of photography is photojournalism because you first need to be able to tell a story through a collection of images. So through that, it's been really interesting because I think a few years ago, I had gone back to the Washington Post sort of as a grown-up kid, you know, and uh, and for them, I think, you know, especially Dudley, you know, I know he's very proud of, you know, all his mentorship where it has led me to. But I think the, the clear thing that he had told me was that I had finally found my voice and I had finally found my aesthetic that was really personal to me. And it was a way also to express all these things uh, that I wanted to express over the years. The style that Ida developed is striking. Her photographs are almost like paintings. There are women in elaborate dress with face paint against simple backgrounds and patterns. And everything is done in stark primary colors. I focus primarily on four colors, which is red, blue, yellow, white, and black. I come from a classical black and white photographer. You know, my mentors were classical photographers. And then also coming from a photojournalistic world, you know, there's, there's a specific language and that exists within photojournalism. And the one person who sort of led me into this path was the curator, Simone Jami, who uh, basically had a project called the Divine Comedies in which, you know, he selected artists from across Africa and we had to do sort of our interpretation of Dante's uh, Divine Comedies. And at that time, I felt a bit insecure as it relates to um, if I should go back to my black and whites or if I should do something new. And then I decided, okay, let me just do this and see, you know, what Simone says about it. It took me, I think, a few years. Then it clicked that the reason I migrated towards these primary colors, because these were sort of the foundation that I grew up in as it relates to Ethiopian church paintings. So when you look at the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, uh, a lot of our wall paintings are really based on these strong primary colors. And that has somehow seeped into my subconscious. And it's just after the audience kept asking that I realized, OK, I'm attracted to these colors, not because they say just something only to me, but also this was also a reflection of the heritage that I was coming from, which took me a while to realize how that had sort of entered into my mind. Do you remember that photograph where these colors and that realization came together? Is there a, is there a certain picture you could describe for us where, in a way, uh, your aesthetic, Ida Moulinet's aesthetic, begins to emerge and make sense, not only to you as the artist, but to us as the viewer? I think that comes about when I did the World is Nine collection. And uh, that collection was dedicated to my grandmother, who would always say the world is nine. She's never a perfect 10. There's a lot of process that goes into creating my work. So, for example, I start with a sketch. Then from the sketches, you know, uh, the symbols and the components that I want to add in there. And then the background, if we're not using an actual location, I actually have artists paint for me the backgrounds because I found that when you have a real background, it has a different sort of feeling to the image. Because in the beginning, I was photoshopping backgrounds, and then I realized, no, let's start painting the background. So right now, what we do is we paint the background, and then we go and edit certain things. And I sort of have this belief is I'm trying to perfect the imperfection. So there are small imperfections within the work that 
I feel moves us into the analog experience as opposed to just a straight digital because my work tends to be very popish, you know. But I believe it was when I did The World is Nine that I just said, okay, I'm just going to focus on these colors because I have so many other things to think about and I don't want to bombard myself with a full palette. I just want to focus on what I feel passionate about. And I realized red became, you know, the, the color that I became obsessed with and then blue as well. So in that collection, you'll see this appearance of red and blue and then with moments of yellow that enter within that. You know, you've spoken in other interviews and conversations about the fact that you yourself as an individual are fed by many streams of history and experience, ethnic, racial, tribal, linguistic, and religious diversity. How do all those things shape your artistic vision? And particularly, I'm interested in some of the conversations that you've had about the spiritual roots of who you are, because you have this incredible intersection of two traditions, don't you? I mean, yes, I I think creativity is a spiritual manifestation because I do believe that the act of creation is not something that you can mathematically calculate or, you know, imagination is something that that needs to be provoked. And I feel that that comes sort of from a, a divine place, however you define divinity within your own space. And I even remember this one time there was an interview from like, I don't know, some sort of publication where the woman was like, you know, I rarely meet artists who, you know, are spiritual or religious. And I said, well, you obviously don't know Ethiopians, whether you choose to be a Christian Orthodox or a Muslim, you know, religion to us, it's not a practice. It's a culture and it's a way of life. And you can only understand that when you're in Ethiopia to understand how that correlates and I come from a family of having both uh, Muslim and Christian family members. So so that you will find in the work uh, as well. You did an incredible series, Aida, about Islam and Ethiopia. And I think often when we think about Ethiopia, we often don't think about Islam and Muslims. But I reflect on my on my sort of own upbringing of understanding the, the history of early Islam and and I can't help but think about Ethiopia. I think about that first migration of the Prophet's community from Mecca, a group of refugees, oppressed, downtrodden, who come to Ethiopia, Abyssinia, find home in the court of a Christian king, a king who later passes away in, in the tradition the Prophet Muhammad himself asks his community to mourn and to pray for this incredible personality. I, I want to ask you about this series because there are some images in that series which move me to tears. Images of devotion, of the elders, of the women in devotion. I I looked at it and I stopped because I had to look again because it was my grandmother, you know, with her headscarf on, with her eyes closed. I saw her in your pictures. It's it's an incredible collection of of photographs. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about about the genesis of this and, and why it was so important to you. Well, I must say, I'm really surprised you know about that. And I believe this is the first time I've been asked in an interview to talk about this because it's often uh, overlooked. So I really appreciate that. No, I mean, I did a almost a two month road trip uh, in the northern region of Ethiopia, and we spent a lot of time driving on the road. And the one thing that I realized was that obviously the I mean, I'm a Christian Orthodox, but I realized that the Orthodox religion in Ethiopia has been documented so much that. 
people don't realize. I mean, Ethiopia, without sounding like a super promoter, but, you know, it is the land of origins. I mean, when you look at Christianity, Islam and Judaism, I mean, we were there. I mean, we, we were mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Quran as well. So in that sense, I felt that uh, no one was approaching it. But I've just always felt that we have to be able to represent what is Ethiopia, which is not just one thing. For example, the region I come from, Wadlo, uh, Christians and Muslims intermarry. And there is, you know, when it's Ramadan, we're with them. When it's like our Christmas, they're with us. You know, so there's always this interaction and sort of a peaceful coexistence. And I don't know, maybe it's one of the unique places in the world in which um, this is how we interpret Islam. And even I remember when my grandmother passed, uh, we went to bury her. And I remember seeing my uncle, uh, his uh, Muslim friends that came on their knees into the church to give their sort of, uh, I don't know, their blessings. And so there are all these interesting points that I found weren't really fully documented as it relates to Islam in Ethiopia. And I felt that this was something that it wasn't it wasn't even for the international world. It was really for Ethiopians to really see that um, how these things are connected. And that's why I say uh, it's not about religion, it's about spirituality. And I believe if you read all the ancient texts, I mean, it's all saying the same thing. You know what I'm saying? It's all moving towards the same goal at the end of the day. And I felt that as a photographer, um, it is necessary to document these things. But, uh, but I find that in that experience, all the mosques that I've visited, they were very supportive and they were quite, um, they really opened up things for me that, that I found, okay, this is a way to shift the perception. Because often in Ethiopia, there is this perception that Muslims don't want to have their photos taken. They're not open to it. And here we were like getting full access to show, okay, this is possible. You know, it, it's not like uh, something that, that is not possible. Is there a particular image uh, when you look up back on that series of images that you and your students took that you kind of go back to and say, this is the kind of the emblematic image? I have one image, which, which is the interior of the mosque. And um, which for me, you know, anywhere that I go, uh, my ultimate goal, and this is what I teach, is that you have to be respectful of people's cultures. You know, don't come with your own ideas of, of whatever Western system that you have thinking that, you know, it should work, especially when you come into the continent. And I remember at that time, um, after I had taken, because I did the Friday prayer on the women's section, I sent the students inside to take uh, photos of the men. And when all of it had finished, I remember the imam came up to me and he was like, is there anything else that you want to take photos of? And I said, yeah, if it's possible, is there any way that I can get on the roof so that I can take photos of the, the prayer, um, what do you call it, the prayer stall? And so he's like, no, no problem. He's like, come with me. So I followed him. And then I realized that we were going inside the mosque. And I told him, sir, like, I can't go inside the mosque, you know, because like, we're not allowed in. I mean, you know, this is sort of not right. And he's like, don't worry about it. He's just come in quickly. And I came in and as I entered, he's like, quickly take photos of all of this. And I was like, oh, my God. All right. So I took photos of everything. And then I went to the roof, took photos also of the roof. And then when I came back out, I remember seeing, you know, some of the old men watching me come out. And I was like, oh, my God, I hope they're not going to say anything to me. So that moment was like defining to me that as a woman, you know, and I always say this is that in some interviews, they ask me, you know, what are the challenges as a woman? You know, do you face this and that? And I say, you know, really, the limitations is really based on yourself. This is what I believe in. And 
I realized that you have to keep yourself open to whatever opportunities and without forcing it, because what is meant to be is going to happen. As you're describing these stories, these memories of, of engaging in these spaces where you yourself didn't know if you could enter into and be part of, and then you're, you're all of a sudden, you're, you're part of them. It's like people are almost in a way, without maybe even saying it, right, handing over themselves, you know, the images of them, of the places that are sacred to them, of the communities that mean everything to them into your hands. And, and in a way, maybe even in an unspoken way, they're saying, we, we trust you. Take these pictures and, and we trust that wherever you take them, that they will be, they will be seen, they will be developed, they will be displayed and exhibited in a way that, that that we would be happy with. That's a, that's a heavy responsibility on the artist, isn't it? I mean, yes, these are the responsibilities that we have to bear. And honestly, you have to remember being a photographer in Africa, especially being African, it's often very challenging because there's a huge distrust of photography based on just the experiences as it relates to how Africa has been documented, how Ethiopia has been documented. And I think for those of us living in the continent, these are sort of the markers that we, we're trying to shift because I find that, especially when foreign photographers come to Ethiopia, for example, there is no connecting points that are being built with the community. There's no transfer of knowledge, you know, uh, and often, especially if everyone is flying in to document some news or and so forth or what have you, I found that things have been one-sided and that's what gets sort of perpetuated within this cliche of what is the media of the one-sided story. And so the, the main challenge for us, and this is what I teach my students, is that I always tell them, you know, photography, especially in photojournalism, it's 99% human relation, it's 1% pressing the button. And what it comes down to is that you have to build trust in people. And I remember I did this workshop in Mercato, which is like, you know, one of the, I think it's the, the largest open air market in Africa. And I did a two day workshop in there with the students to make them understand how to build trust in the most difficult setting possible. And Mercato is a place where, you know, nobody wants to talk to you, especially if you're trying to bring in a camera in there, like forget it. And over time, they understood that the human relation is such an important thing because people really look in your eyes, you know, uh, and they're able to see you uh, through your eyes. And there's also a sense or an energy that people also get a feeling for. And to me, this is something that I guess I, I intuitively have of trying to build connecting points. But also I wanted to help people understand that I'm here to tell the story that wasn't told. And I'm here to show things that weren't shown. And granted, you know, there are times where people will come, you know, they will call the police or, you know, uh, random people will show up and tell you, why are you taking photos of this? And and this is why, like, in photojournalism, you cannot have an ego. If you come in with a big ego, it's it's a sure way that you're not going to get the truth out of that moment. So uh, often, you know, when people say, I don't want my photo taken, we're like, okay, you know, there's a million other photos to be taken. Hearing you speak about your work, hearing you speak about your students and these exciting spaces that are developing that you're helping develop and you're helping establish where photography and this kind of artistic expression is being not only celebrated but presented to the world and is challenging the world. And you've also spoken 
today about spirituality and how deeply you are moved by the spirit. And I, I kind of want to know what spirits are you channeling? Uh, what messages are you bringing to us from the unseen worlds, from our ancestors, that it would be important for us to know about and recognize? I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, often when the Western world thinks of Africa, they always have these like visions of like we made no contributions to the world, but the birthplace of the first person is Ethiopia. If you look at the complex systems of spiritual beliefs and even, uh, for example, a lot of my research looks at uh, traditional art because I find that these traditional art to be highly sophisticated because there is a sense of purpose to it. And you have to remember, like, art is being created in Africa, especially for traditional belief systems, as a form of a spiritual object. Even when you look at uh, the temples in, in, in Egypt, they were not built as an exercise of vanity. They were actually built as a space for sort of uh, spirituality in, in that way. And I come from a country where we have a very ancient history where there are these spaces, you know, very old structures that you see. And honestly, even when, when I look at a lot of the work that I create, I'm bringing things from the past and moving it into the future. And this is why even my work is considered almost like Afrofuturism in the sense that I'm taking traditional elements, but bringing it into the contemporary. And I always tell people, you know, Picasso took a lot from Africa, you know, and uh, a lot of people don't know this or they're in denial about it. But, you know, a lot of this inspiration came from these traditional arts, which means that what some spaces might call primitive art is actually a very sophisticated system, which manifested on the foundation of spirituality. So in that sense, this is how I approach my work and a lot of the research that I do as well, even for the face painting um, I find it quite fascinating, you know, the, the art of body painting and scarification and all these sense of beauty on the body, you know, how art also exists in the physical form within the continent. And unfortunately, as this sort of modernity enters, we're sort of phasing away from these things. I mean, I can honestly tell you when I go to my grandmother's village, like my cousins are more connected to the earth than I am. And they will sense things that I'm not able to sense. So I find that I don't know. I, I don't want to say this, but as more technology enters, I feel like we're getting more dumber. I don't know. This is this is how I see things. But this is why I think also spirituality is something that we cannot lose sight of because it is something that's very, you know, it's part of our humanity. Either that that is so fascinating because as you've said before, there's almost a pop art element to your work. You know, there's something that is so riveting, contemporary now. And as you're speaking, now I'm, I'm, I'm reimagining the work in my head and I'm saying, well, how much of this is pop art, so to speak? And how much of this is just tradition laid bare in a new way, almost in a new medium? That's a remarkable place to sit as an artist, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about a place to sit. I, I, I only do things that I feel passionate about and that I care for. Um, but you have to remember every piece that I make, I have to feel it within me. And if I don't feel it, then I don't do it. And that's why I say that the, you have to build a connecting point, not just with what you want to say, but what are you making? And honestly, like I consider myself very blessed. You know, my work has been accepted. You know, there's different people who are interested in it and so forth. But when I started out, it wasn't really 
like I wasn't seeking the validation of the audience. I just had things to say that I wanted to say. And I found, you know, this form to be able to to express it. And as Africans, I mean, yeah, I speak English in this way. But a lot of the times people forget, like being an African is so many different things. You know, we have complex layers, you know, there's a different interpretation of us. But at the same time, who we are to the core, you know, our roots and our heritage and our culture are, are really deeply embedded within us. And these are the things that I want to celebrate because I find that in the continent, when you look at the traditional cultures, it's almost like we're coming to a generation like there's no real value in it or it's kind of like, you know, the choice is towards modernity. And I find that the real value is in the traditional because, you know, culture is never stagnant. It's always moving and evolving. And my question always is that how as Africans are we evolving within our own culture? And within that, it's also the conversation of like, how is African culture impacting the, the global world? So in that sense, you know, it, it's been a very exciting journey. You know, the, the funny thing is when I do the work, I mean, there's several processes within it. And then when it's up on a show, first of all, it's very interesting what people see in the image or how they find themselves in the image. I find these to be very fascinating. Everybody has their own interpretation. But I think the great beauty and what I love is when children come to my exhibition, you know, from these school groups and Sometimes, you know, I will be present and they don't know it's me. And I just sit there and I just listen to what they're attracted to and, you know, how they see things. And I find this so fascinating. And I feel that for myself as an artist, as a photographer, I want to have an impact in a way that when you go home, that you don't forget what you just saw, that it will always be embedded in your head that I know, okay, at a minimum, I've done my job. Who or what would you like to welcome into your guest house today? Anyone that's willing to enter is my theory. And I, I, I must tell you, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, of Rumi. There's one poem that I love, which I have on my signature, where it says, Woman is a ray of God. She's not the earthly beloved. She's creative, not created. Aida Moulinay, it has been such a privilege speaking with you. Thank you so much for being with me on This Being Human. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It was really a great conversation. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can see some of Ida Moulinay's work at Toronto's Textile Museum of Canada in May 2022. You can also find more resources related to this conversation by clicking on the link in the show notes. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton with production assistance from Dania Ali and Abi Raheja. Our executive producer is Lisa Gabriel. Mixing and sound design by Reza Daya. Original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antigo Productions. Katie O'Connor is TVO's senior producer of podcasts. And Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Islamic civilizations around the world. 
For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human. <laughs>